It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're taking a break from the normal diet of American elections, European politics and great power rivalries and looking at the politics of Burma, or Myanmar as it's officially known. In fact, the political significance of that choice between saying either Burma or Myanmar is something we'll explain. I'm conscious that Burma, as we'll call it during this podcast, might sound like an obscure subject in an obscure country. But please keep listening. As you'll hear, many of the most pressing issues facing the whole world are actually confronting Burma in a particularly acute form. Those problems include climate change, refugees, nationalism, the rise of China, poverty and inequality, the impact of the internet on politics, and the global retreat of democracy. So what can Burma tell us about the world? My guest this week is a leading historian of Burma, Thant Mint U. I first met Thant almost 30 years ago in 1992, when he was a young UN official working in Cambodia, and I was a foreign correspondent covering the UN-sponsored peace process. The other big story in Southeast Asia at that time was the ongoing house arrest in Burma of one of the world's most famous political prisoners, Aung San Suu Kyi. Her eventual release from house arrest in 2010 was huge global news. A couple of years later, the lady, as she was often called in the Western press, was able to accept the Nobel Peace Prize that had been awarded to her in absentia in 1991. The Nobel Prize had drawn the attention of the world to the struggle for democracy and human rights in Burma. We were not going to be forgotten. The Western world longed for a happy Hollywood-style ending, with Aung San Suu Kyi cast as the Southeast Asian version of Nelson Mandela. But instead, under her leadership, Burma's been defined above all by the Rohingya crisis, which has seen hundreds of thousands of members of the Rohingya Muslim minority driven out of the country after a brutal army crackdown. Looking at Burma now, many outsiders are both shocked and a little baffled. So what happened? And how should we understand the situation? There's no better guide, in my opinion, than Thant Mintu. His book, The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century, was published to great acclaim in 2019. Thant normally lives in the Burmese capital, Rangoon. But when I heard he was in London this month, I persuaded him into the FT studio for a socially distanced interview. And I started by asking him why Burma's story, often portrayed as a simple struggle between democracy and dictatorship, is in his view a lot more complicated than that. I mean, Burma is a country that really since colonial times, so since the early 20th century, has had all kinds of different problems from underdevelopment to armed conflicts since the 1940s to the 1950s to dictatorship. 
And I guess, you know, since the 1990s, because the focus has been so much on this contest between Aung San Suu Kyi and the generals, that many of these long, deep-seated sort of issues really haven't been properly addressed. And on top of them, we have a whole host of new ones like climate change, for example, and the impact of social media. So, you know, it's a poor country. It's always been a poor country. It's a fractious country. It's a country with lots of different insurgent groups and, and militia groups. But now it's also trying to be a democracy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that has also created a whole host of new challenges as well. Well, we'll go through a lot of these challenges in a moment, but let's start actually with one you highlight in particular, which is climate change, where it seems that, you know, there's always this debate about when are we going to feel the consequences, that Burma really is feeling it absolutely right now. It's absolutely feeling the consequences now. I mean, it's difficult to come up with very hard data because no one knows for sure if a specific weather event is related to climate change or not. But this is a country which 12 years ago with Cyclone Argus, you know, lost 140,000 people in a single night due to a cyclone. Now, we don't know if that was because of climate change, but what we do know is that more extreme weather events are happening now and are likely to continue over the coming decades. The monsoon pattern has shifted to some extent over the past few years. At least there's more drought. Farmers are facing extreme difficulty. And we're likely to, you know, feel the effects of rising sea levels as well as extreme heat in parts of the country very soon as well. So, because the capital Rangoon could be threatened by floods? I think actually the rising sea levels is probably something that is probably, you know, 10, 20 years down the road. I think it's the changing rainfall patterns because so much of the country still depends on agriculture and specifically rice agriculture and also extreme weather events because we're so exposed to, you know, heavy monsoon rains, cyclones and everything else in the summer. And you were saying that temperatures are now up to 45 degrees in the, in the summer. Yeah, in the dry zone, which is actually the poorest part of the country, the heart of the country where 20 million people live, you've had this enormous outmigration of people over the past 10, 15 years for a variety of reasons, but partly because of extreme heat and difficulty in continuing their old agricultural practices. And I guess these environmental changes are part of the background to the story which in some ways in the minds of the outside world has displaced the Aung San Suu Kyi story, which is the Rohingya story, the bloodshed and the refugees, I think hundreds of thousands of them who've had to flee Burma and are now mainly in Bangladesh. Explain to me what lay behind that. Why did that suddenly surge in this rather tragic way? I don't think there's a single explanation. You know, you have this backdrop of a country that's extremely poor, that's been under all kinds of different stresses, including environmental stresses. But it's also a country which really, since World War II, has been at armed conflict with itself. So you have these different insurgent groups. You have an army that has been consistently in the field fighting counterinsurgency operations since 1947, 48, in a very brutal way often, displacing people, burning down villages. And then in 2011, with the beginning of a more open, slightly more democratic space, you had the first communal riots and violence in that part of the country between Rohingya and Rakhine Buddhists, essentially. And because it was a more democratic setting, the government at the time, who were looking at popular feeling much more than they would have in the past, didn't do what I think they themselves knew was necessary in terms of clamping down on hate speech, in terms of reintegrating displaced populations and things like that. So the problem sort of festered. And then all of a sudden you had this new insurgency develop, the, the Arsa, the Rohingya insurgency, And the army moved against that insurgency with a sort of ferocity that, in a way, is not too surprising given Burma's past history, but was perhaps made more extreme because of this environment that had built up over the past several years. Mm. And there are a couple of themes in that which, again, resonate for even people sitting in the West. The one is identity politics, and the second 
is the role of the internet and of social media in stoking all of this. To start with that, I mean, there's a very striking figure you cited that in 2011, I think only 1% of Burmese were on the internet. And by 2015, they had some of the fastest broadband in the world. What were the political effects of that? Yeah, it's interesting because the political opening began in 2011. Everyone was on 3G, then 4G wireless by 2014, 2015. So now pretty much 100% of the country has a mobile phone. 80-something percent are on smartphones. All the people on smartphones are on Facebook. It's the only platform. So in one way, it's been very good for Burma's democratic change in the sense that you have much more transparency. You have government departments now with COVID. You have the health ministry broadcasting things over Facebook. So in that way, it's been good. But the effect on old media has been disastrous, partly because there wasn't any old media except the state-controlled media. But there was a new kind of blossoming of print media in 2011-2012. And they've been crushed by this new environment. I mean, they've had a really hard time being able to survive financially. And so Facebook has taken over everything, or social media has taken over everything. So it's had that effect. I think with hate speech, I think the jury's still out. I mean, certainly if you look at Facebook in Burmese, there's there's hate speech, but I'm not sure it's more or less than any other country in the world. And I think if we look at the Rohingya crisis, specifically at the violence in 2016, 2017, I don't think we can draw a very straight line. Because I think if it had happened even without Facebook, if there was a new insurgency by a population that people saw as different, alien, didn't belong to the country. I mean, the army might have acted with the same level of violence that it did, you know, in a Facebook environment as well. Right. So then to focus on the other issue, the identity politics, which I guess is the phrase we're all using now in these contexts, explain what it means specifically in the Burmese context and why Burmese identity is so contested. I mean, I guess there, you know, there's a lot of things that one can still study and, and trying to learn about in terms of what was there before the British. But in British times, there was a real attempt over the late 19th, early 20th century to categorize people by race and by ethnicity. And so the Burmese were classified as a specific race or all kinds of theories by British ethnographers in terms of where they really came from and their origins and everything else. But then all the other people in the country were also classed according to race. And then the Indians who were in the country were classed as alien races. And they had come up from British India. Yes, but I think, you know, if you went back before, there were always people going back and forth and there were people coming. But in British times, you know, a very clear line was drawn between alien people and indigenous people. At the same time, because Burma was part of India, millions of Indians did migrate from what is today India, Bangladesh, Pakistan into Burma. And so at the very time that modern Burmese politics was sort of forming in the 1920s, nationalism kind of focused on this sense of indigeneity versus the aliens coming in, both the British and the Indians. And that has been core to the Burmese political DNA ever since. And then it gets out of hand. It gets more complicated because at independence, I mean, it's one thing to have a kind of ethnically, racially focused nationalism, which says the Burmese are indigenous and the British are foreign and the Indians are also alien, because a lot of the Indians then left at independence and the British left at independence. But suddenly these Burmese nationalists found that they were in a country with dozens of other minorities as well, who might not feel that comfortable integrating into that single Burmese nationalism. And so that sense of, you know, what is this country really? It's not just the country minus the Indians or the British. It's also many people speaking many other languages, people who are Christian as well as Muslim. And so what is Burma as a nation has been a problem since independence. And that has linked with an ongoing set of armed conflicts and helped to fuel those armed conflicts. And what proportion of the population would identify as ethnic Burmese? Two-thirds of the country are native Burmese speakers. I mean, in the sense of their mother tongue is Burmese. 
And probably about 90% are Buddhists, but that includes other minorities as well. So about one third of the country are minorities. There's probably more people now in 2020 who are mixed than, say, 30, 40 years ago. I think most people would have a grandparent that's one thing and another grandparent that's another. But that's not really recognized. So in the Burmese system, which is kind of inherited from the colonial system on the censuses, even on people's voting registration, ethnicity and whether or not you're indigenous or not is really important. Mm. And there's been a big disillusionment again in the outside world with Aung San Suu Kyi, who was held up as this heroic figure given the Nobel Peace Prize. And she's been roundly condemned in the West for not speaking out more forcefully in defense of the Rohingyas and so on. What's your take on that? I mean, I think in the West, she had become by the late 1990s a sort of icon of democracy and, and human rights at really the high point of Western you know, liberal intervention is thinking pre-Iraq, pre-Afghanistan. And it was she was a great person to be seen to support in a part of the world where people were already talking about Asian values and different ways of doing things. So I think it wasn't a mystery that she became such an iconic figure in the West. I think in Burma, though, she was always something else. And she was tied not to kind of any sort of human rights, democracy feeling. Though that was part of it because people were extremely unhappy with military dictatorship, but with the nationalist movement. And her father is a nationalist leader in the 1940s. And so I think, you know, she draws much more in Burma from this feeling of nationalism and ethnic nationalism and a desire to kind of make the country proud again and to, and to move the country forward in some way, as well as to move the country out from underneath this military dictatorship. And given the ethnic and political background that you describe and all these historically based resentments, do you think she could have played it differently in any significant way and retained a political base in Burma? I think the tragedy is that, you know, in 2016, she had won a landslide victory in the first free and fair elections in a generation. The entire international community, not just the West, but the Chinese, the Indians, the Japanese, everyone supported her and wanted to support her government. She had won the vote not just of the ethnic Burmese, but also of many minority peoples who saw her as the best possible national leader as well. So we really had this moment of opportunity. And she reached out to Kofi Annan to set up this commission to try to find a just solution to the Rohingya issue. And just when Kofi Annan had begun his work, this new insurgency developed. And that, either depending on how you look at it, gave the army the excuse or led the army to this violent set of crackdowns, which then led to this refugee exodus. And then her reaction, her unwillingness to speak out against those abuses has led to a complete change in people, at least outside the country's perception of her in the West. Is there any way back now? I mean, over 700,000 refugees outside the country? Back for them. Back for Burma, back for them. I mean, a way of solving this problem. I think the old story of Burma as this kind of almost mythical place with this incredible heroine who's going to bring democracy to this country, I think that's kind of gone. And I don't think in the West anyone's going to ever see her as this kind of iconic figure of human rights and democracy. But, you know, the country lives on and it's 55, 56 million people are still with enormous problems, but still with tremendous opportunities. I mean, being in between China and India in this Asian region, we don't know what the post-pandemic kind of future of this region is going to be. But Burma is going to be part of that broader story as well. I think for the Rohingya, the big problem is that at a time when this incipient democracy is so focused on other issues, they have not been a priority in terms of finding some sort of solution. And so I'm very pessimistic. I mean, that the 700,000 people from Bangladesh will be able to come back in any kind of safe and dignified way. There's no solution to the Rohingya problem that's not part of a national solution in terms of where the country goes, in terms of identity issues and everything else. And the biggest tragedy, of course, is for the kids there. I mean, nearly half the refugee camp are, are children, and every year that they're there, 
is probably another year that's going to be much more difficult to have them come back and be integrated in any way. You mentioned China there, and I think President Xi Jinping, just before COVID hit, paid a visit to Myanmar, Burma. Actually, before I ask you about that, you choose to call it Burma rather than Myanmar. Why is that? I mean, we're of a generation which grew up saying Burma. It's still difficult for me to say Myanmar in English. It's actually grammatically strange because in Burma, Myanmar is an adjective. That's one thing. Secondly, I think Burma just sounds better in English and is easier to say. Third, I think that the name change back in the late 80s was part of an attempt to kind of assert an ethno-nationalist identity on the country by insisting that in English we use the Burmese name. So that's something I don't really like very much. But also, I just think with these name changes, not just in Burma, but elsewhere, you just lose a sense of history, right? And Burma is not just a kind of name that British colonialists sort of imposed. Burma is a name that goes back to the 1500s. Uh, that the Portuguese use, the French and others. So I think you break away from history. And I, I think, in a way, bringing history back into the picture is such an important thing about, and colonialism and everything else, such an important thing about thinking about where this country can go going forward as well. Having got myself sidetracked, back to China. We were saying Xi Jinping pays, I think, the first visit by a Chinese leader to Burma for 20 years. You mentioned China earlier as clearly an economic opportunity for Burma. But equally, they can be very overshadowed how do you think Burma strikes the balance and should strike the balance? I mean, it's trying to strike the balance in an old-fashioned way of let's just sort of balance things and not be too close to any big power and everything else. But I'm not sure that that's going to be sufficient now because I think in this environment, we have two things. One is you have a country that's extremely poor and much poorer than China now than compared to 20 years ago. Secondly, you have this kind of commitment to sort of free markets, but what that commitment to free markets is doing in Burma by crowding out the possibility of a clear national economic development strategy is it's actually opening up the country not to just global, socially responsible, multinational corporations, but basically to anything that comes in from China. And so it's not the Chinese kind of BRI Belt Road Initiative big projects. The Burmese government are going slow on those projects saying, we're not sure, you know, we're worried about a debt trap. We want to make sure that these projects are okay. It's the thousands of other business investments, asset buyouts, Chinese firms coming into the country which again, don't necessarily have to be a bad thing because the country desperately needs trade and investment, but they're not harnessed to any sense of where the country should go. And so there could be a much bigger Chinese footprint on the country that increases Chinese influence, but it's not really tied to a development agenda. I think that's the problem. So Burma has the opportunity to use Chinese investment like any other investment, but without that development agenda, I think it's going to be very difficult. And presumably, the more Chinese investment comes in, the clearer the political consequences, because at a certain point, if China owns so many of the assets, so much of the trade, it becomes really very hard not to cleave to Chinese foreign policy. I guess there's a couple of problems. I mean, one is that with the Belt Road Initiative projects, if the Myanmar government goes ahead, as it says it will, with this China-Myanmar economic corridor, which would be a transport corridor linking Yunnan to the Indian Ocean across central Burma. So this would be rail, maybe high-speed rail, everything else, to a port that the Chinese would develop in a special economic zone, an industrial zone on, next to that port. All of a sudden, China would have this bridge to the Bay of Bengal, to the Indian Ocean, which it could one day say it's also vital for its own security interests as well. So I think there are people in Burma who are aware of that and, and are trying to tread carefully. At the same time, I think it's very hard in Burma for people to say no to China because it is the big country next door. And it, it is the country that still maintains links with many insurgent groups inside the country. So it's not just some distant country that has economic power. It's a country next door in an open border area where there are dozens of different insurgent groups who also depend on China as well. So China's key to peace. 
But I think the other nightmare scenario for Burma would be something where, you know, China's economic influence increases or Chinese, there's migration of Chinese people, Chinese firms, and that leads to a local nationalist backlash. And you can imagine, given where China is now and it's thinking about itself and in the world, if you had Burmese Chinese riots in Burma, as you had in the 60s, and say 20, 30 Chinese citizens were killed in communal violence, and that would be a disaster. I mean, China would feel it would have to respond. So I think there are many ways in which this relationship is both critical for Burma, but also brings all kinds of possible threats. And it also suggests to me that Burma is once again in a very interesting geopolitical situation, because as you say, it lies between the two emerging superpowers of the 21st century, if you can categorize India in that way, it's the other country of over a billion people. And of course, in the Second World War, it was a crucial battleground in the battle between the West and Japan. Absolutely. So Burma was strategically important at that time. I think with India, I think India is very, very keen now, especially with India-China tensions, not to have, you know, its entire eastern flank kind of occupied by China. So I, I think relations between Delhi and, and Burma are very good. I think the Indians really want to see how closer relationships might be possible. But it's very difficult for India to kind of flex the kind of economic muscle that China can. And, you know, in this COVID and post-COVID world, where it might be that much more important, I mean, the country's now, you know, in the middle of a deep economic downturn, where there's a need for fast cash, there's a need for an injection of cash into the local economy for new investments. I mean, China is the obvious source. The only other country I think that can compete with China and that is competing with China in Burma successfully is Japan. Through both government-to-government projects, through JICA, which is a Japanese aid agency, as well as big Japanese companies who are all present in Burma and offering to build or are building big infrastructure projects. And Burma is, of course, a member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And the question of where Southeast Asia goes in this new era of superpower competition is an important one. Some people have seen Cambodia as, in a sense, China's proxy within ASEAN as the country that helps prevent ASEAN from a block against China, or not that it would ever do that, but but that influences it in a pro-China direction. Do you think Burma is also likely to be in the kind of pro-China wing of Southeast Asia? No, I don't think so. I mean, first, I mean, it was 75 years ago, I think, that the, the word Southeast Asia was coined you know, by Mountbatten in the Southeast Asia Command at the end of the Second World War. I think Burma, perhaps not as much as Vietnam, but in a not dissimilar way as a country that borders China, the kind of wariness of China is much more ingrained than it is in Cambodia or in Thailand. I think in terms of how, you know, how important ASEAN becomes in the future as an institution, that's the, I think there's a big question mark over that. And I think most countries in Southeast Asia probably think of you know, other neighbors and themselves first. And, and for ordinary people, ASEAN as an institution is not very important. I think in the Burma case, I think the next few years will be key because you, you know, if a new generation that's coming to the fore, if it's a new generation for whom business ties with China, familiarity with China, because they themselves have been there or they have Chinese friends who are business members, I think that could begin to reshape things. So how we come out of this pandemic world and where those initial connections are strongest, I think will have an outsized influence in terms of where things go. Yeah. And you mentioned the pandemic, and I guess a lot of these geopolitical questions I've been discussing are, as you say, pretty abstract for the ordinary person. How is uh, Burma coping with COVID-19? And before you answer that question, I gather you, I mean, just to give a sense of what it's like in the country, you had quite a trip to to get to London. Just describe how you got here. I was on a, I was lucky enough to get onto a, a UN relief flight and that went from Yangon or Rangoon to Vientiane to Kuala Lumpur. And then I had to go from Kuala Lumpur to Doha and then from Doha to Stockholm. And my wife is Swedish. 
we spent two weeks in Sweden. And that was about 36 hours altogether. I mean, the flights themselves were not that different from normal. Actually, I was so happy just to be on a, on a plane and waiting for my baggage at the carousel and everything else, not having done that for six months. Yeah. But is that basically because commercial flights, Burma sealed off? Yeah, yeah it sealed off. So, I mean, the government took a very tough stance on, on COVID right away in March when it looked like, you know, there could be a big wave of infection coming its way. And, and knowing that, partly because of, you know, legacy of military dictatorship, our healthcare system is almost nowhere to be found, right? So the vast majority of people have no access to proper healthcare. And so they cut off all commercial flights, sealed off the country essentially to some extent, except for border trade, and locked down the cities back in April. And so since then, there's been almost nothing, no infection, no deaths until about three, four weeks ago, a sudden spike, I think probably related to the big explosion of cases in India, then Bangladesh, and, and the initial kind of infections were coming across the border from Bangladesh. And so that has led to not panic, but to a real outbreak now for the very first time centered in Rangoon of maybe a thousand or more positive test cases a day and about 20 or 30 deaths a day, which is not a lot by some international standards, but it's after nothing for six months. Let me finish by um, coming on to sort of, I guess, the big abstract question, which has been circling in a lot of what we're talking about, which is this question of Burma's transition to democracy. Because as we were talking, I could hear in my back of my mind, some of the Chinese people I know who are skeptical of the case for democracy in developing countries saying, well, what did you expect? You know, it was always a kind of Western fantasy that this place could be a functioning democracy. Actually, it's led to violence, to ethnic discord. It's the wrong priority anyway. Most people are very poor. You should just have a developmental, if they wouldn't call it dictatorship, but a sort of strongman model, whatever you want to call it. Don't attempt to be a Western liberal democracy at this stage. What do you think about that big question I mean, I think, one, that, you know, the military dictatorship was a terrible thing in Burma and that we are now 10 years on from the beginning of reforms in a far freer political state. I mean, there are huge problems. The Rohingya crisis and ethnic cleansing was one. But in general, the country is in a far freer political state than it's been in generations. And I think that's a good thing in itself. And you have a whole generation of young people coming of age who are, who are used to that political freedom and who expect that political freedom. But I think it would have been wrong, and I think it is wrong, to focus just on democracy in a very narrow sense, in the sense of, you know, elections and things as the answer to everything. And clearly, the issues of underdevelopment and the issues of resolving the armed conflict have to be married very closely to the kind of process of political change in the country. That's a way of saying that, you know, we have to think about all these things together and think about the proper sequencing of change and the interrelationships between these things. So you can't just expect democracy to kind of blossom overnight and not deal with these other issues. I would actually think that the right development agenda that brings people together is the thing that can give content to new democratic debate. I mean, there are huge issues. I mean, just the China issue, you know, should we be a country that links very tightly to China markets or not? Should we be a country that has more protectionist policies to allow infant industries to grow? Should we have our own Green New Deal after this pandemic? You know, these are issues that should be publicly debated. And I think those are the issues that will actually give content to our democracy, rather than simply going through the process of elections, which I don't think, I mean, are important. We should have elections, but I don't think they alone are going to solve any of these problems. Okay, thanks very much indeed, then. Thank you. That was Stant Mintu in London, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I do hope you'll be able to join us again next week, when I think it's pretty inevitable that we'll be discussing the US election. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.